Welcome to the second Manchester Futurist podcast. Today we are speaking to David Wood. David was one of the pioneers of the smartphone industry and is now a renowned futurist commentator, speaker and writer. David's futurist bona fides are really beyond dispute. He has a triple first class mathematics degree from Cambridge and has been the chair of the London Futurists since 2011. Now without further preamble, we give you David Wood. So I chair London Futurist, which is part of a range of things I do, and they all have the common theme of trying to improve the caliber of the conversation about the future. Mm-hmm. I want more people to think more seriously about the future because, in a sense, the future is coming more quickly than it used to. The rate of change is increasing, and there's a risk that if we don't think seriously enough about the future, we'll get out of the train station and we'll find we've ended up somewhere that wasn't at all where we expected to go. How long have you been going at this for now? So London Futurist has been running in this form for nine years, since March 2008. But I've been interested in the future in many ways for a lot longer. Like many other people who now call themselves futurists, I discovered science fiction when I was young. I think I read all the science fiction books in the children's <laughs> section of my library well before I was 13 and managed to start reading some of the adult books. But in my business life, I was in the mobile computing and smartphone space from before the advent of modern smartphones such as the iPhone and Android. I worked with visionaries from companies such as Nokia, Ericsson, Motorola, Samsung, Panasonic and others. And it made me think hard about, well, what do we really think is going to happen with these devices? And it was clear that these devices would transform lots of areas of life. They weren't just for simple communications. They would be used for navigation. They would transform education, entertainment, healthcare, and lots more. And the more I saw the rate of change of smartphones, the more I also realized that other areas of technology were due to have similar exponential surges, things like artificial intelligence, Nanotechnology, which I discovered earlier by reading the groundbreaking book by Eric Drexler, Ancients of Creation, which is the first that opened my eyes to the wider possibilities of new technology. And then I read Ray Kurzweil's book, not the one she's more famous for more recently, The Singularity is Near, but before that, he produced a book in, I think, 1999 called The Age of Spiritual Machines. I remember thinking, that's a strange title. I could understand the age of intelligence machines, but he convinced me that, in fact, that there's nothing about uh, spirituality, about the things that humans really care, which can't be emulated by artificial intelligence. And then I read the book which changed my life more than any others, which was the book by James Hughes about Citizen Cyborg, in which he argues that the good possibilities of technology cannot be taken for granted that politics is going to uh, be very interested in these trends and changes and that we have to steer politics for a positive result. So that made me search out other people who had similar interests and I connected with them and that group of people I met in London are the nexus of what became London Futurists. Great, so you've mentioned uh, a bit about kind of technological acceleration and you've also mentioned politics which is why uh, you're here to talk to us today. So I was wondering, um, how do you think those two things kind of connect up? How is technological acceleration going to have an impact on politics? 
So there's two angles to this. One is that we should be doing politics a lot better by taking advantage of technological innovations such as artificial intelligence and uh, data analysis, real-time fact-checking systems and so forth. But there's a bigger sense in which the two topics are intertwined and that is that technology is changing people's lives in dramatic ways and it's causing a lot of alienation and angst. It's not making everybody uniformly better off. It's making a lot of people feel worse off than before. This is the topic of technological unemployment or technological underemployment or the precariat. Many people's jobs are quite precarious, so it's very good for a minority of people who are able to capitalize on this incredible new trends, but more and more people are finding themselves seemingly missing out. And this is going to cause social alienation. It's happened before in previous industrial revolutions. After all, Marx and Engel wrote in the wake of the first industrial revolution when real-time wages had been depressed and what economists now call the Engel's pause of rising salaries. And I believe that the transformations that we're about to see in society in the wake of the fourth industrial revolution, which people talk about and I think is a good description, they're going to be more profound than unless we have smart politics to ensure that the benefits come to everybody, then there's going to be a lot of very angry and alienated people. And some of them will run off and join groups like Islamic State. Others will vote for electors, uh, candidates such as Donald Trump. And there'll be all manner of other things which people will do out of uh, anger and frustration, which could jeopardize the positive future which should be within our grasp. Yeah, the uh, I, I was wondering how events like Donald Trump and Brexit and things like that, how has that affected your kind of analysis of the future? Was that, had you kind of foreseen that coming or was that a bit of a shock? I know for me, I found it quite, both times I was quite shocked by it. Um, and yeah, do you see, do you see that as a big danger? Obviously, Donald Trump is putting all these, uh, you know, um, things in place that are going to potentially have bad impacts on the environment, climate change, all this sort of thing. Is that... Should we be worried? <laughs> so I am worried about uh, having a rogue political leader, somebody who is able to charm a lot of the electorate but is just out of his depth. Mm. I am worried about what will follow. As you say, there can be bad responses to real uh, crises, such as the pending crisis of climate change, and there could be other international incidents which demand... Uh, sure hand on the tiller, which I don't think people in Trump's regime uh, can be relied on to deliver. So did I foresee this? I have to say not exactly, mm. although for many years I was saying eventually we might have people doing uh, uh, bad political choices. Right. I didn't think it would happen quite so quickly. Yeah. And so it made me, I have to say, more pessimistic than before. Yeah. I used to say that if I look at all the scenarios for the future, I see really good outcomes about two-thirds of the time and really bad outcomes one-third of the time with not much in the middle. And that has now changed to more like 60-40. So I'm still more optimistic okay. than pessimistic, but <laughs> I have seen too, many, too much evidence of people's intelligence leading them to bad outcomes. You know, as we've got smarter... We haven't necessarily got wiser. Yeah. As we are stronger, we're not necessarily kinder. And we're using our greater intelligence <coughs> to justify 
the political and other emotional feelings that we want to believe anyway. So we use that great intelligence to search for the few bits of evidence that back up our theories and to give us plenty of reasons, usually bad reasons, to ignore the counter evidence. Mm. Are our politicians ready for the up, up and coming storm, in your view? So there are a few politicians who realise that uh, these things are in need of more attention. Politicians from all parties, I have to say. I can't mm. just say it's uh, people in one party are more attuned than others. However, that awareness has to fight for mindshare alongside lots of other things which are also on the minds of politicians. Mm. And the short-term crisis and the perceived short-term crisis frequently drives out proper consideration of these longer-term things. So it's the role of futurists to find ways to grow the conversation about credible futures. So let's dig down deeper into what some of the short-term crises are. What, what are the immediate uh, considerations politicians need to think about? Is it the loss of is automation that's going to cause a lot of mass unemployment? That should be a, what, what kind of the what short-term things politicians should be looking at? Well, politicians are concerned in the short term about things like the crisis of funding in the NHS. That's a very real crisis. The best solution to that will be to apply technology more fully and uh, more widely. But that's not going to happen just uh, incrementally. It's going to require some uh, disruptive uh, changes. It's going to require, in particular, more focus on preventative medicine rather than uh, patching up problems after they've already arisen. And it's going to involve addressing the biggest root cause of diseases, which is aging. That as we get older, we are more prone to all kinds of chronic disease, which in turn have economic bad economic consequences. First of all, we are less able, when we are chronically ill, we're less able to contribute to the economy. And secondly, we consume resources from the health system and from uh, social support. So if we are able to delay the onset of this aging, and there are mechanisms in place which can be done, then I think that's the best solution to the crisis in the NHS. The best solution to the challenges of people not having enough work isn't going to be to create more work. It isn't going to be create uh, equivalents of bullshit jobs, as they're sometimes <laughs> known. It's going to be to transition to a society in which people no longer need to work. When I say work, it means work for a salary. We will be working, but we'll be working on our hobbies and on our passions, our explorations, our creativity. Uh, and these are all important tasks. Looking after each other is very important. And this will only be possible if, first of all, there is some mechanism such as a universal basic income, which thankfully is being discussed more and more, to be paid to everybody, to take the pain and the heat off, the need to go and find work, even if it's not uh, the kind of work you want to do. So that's the first change that needs to be in place. And secondly, there needs to be a change in culture. The whole culture has got to stop thinking, well, this person's not working, this person is somehow substandard, yeah. this is skyver, it's a selfish person, they're substandard. We must change out of that whole Calvinist work ethic, which is probably a good culture for most of history, but it's no longer the appropriate culture. And we should now value people for the creative things they can do rather than just the contributions they make to the workforce, the paid workforce. As I've said to Ahmed many times, I can't wait until I can be a full-time philosopher <laughs> and have universal basic income. That's actually uh, the topic that we're planning to cover in our next meetup in April. Um, 
universal basic income and uh, I you know I think it's one of the only viable solutions that I can see to the problem but a question that I still haven't got a good answer to and I'm wondering whether you can help me here is if we all have uh, a, a nice universal basic income that covers our basic needs what's to stop um, local uh, sort of micro economies from seeing that as inflation so if I if I have more money because I've or if I'm giving a being given a basic income why shouldn't my landlord raise my rent because they know that I can use my basic income to cover it how do you stop that kind of like manufactured inflation so there will be issues mm -hmm. uh, such as inflation uh, which will need some smart governance and we're going to figure it out there are uh, an increasing number of trials envisioned around the world for how basic income would work and no doubt there will be risks and we're going to have to fine-tune how it operates uh, there are problems but I see there are an order of magnitude less than the problem which basic sure. income itself is targeted to fix yeah. it may be that we have to impose uh, some limits on what rents can be charged mm. it may be that uh, the payment of rent is handled separately yeah, big questions ahead. In mm -hmm. fact, I would say that the transition to an implementation of basic income is at least as difficult and as challenging a project as all the technology automation has been. Sure. You know, it's taken huge efforts for millions, hundreds of millions of people worldwide to collectively improve the technology so that uh, automation can take place in the scale that it has. It's probably going to take huge numbers of people thinking very hard, implementing all kinds of experiments before we get this right. So let's start with the experiments. Mm -hmm. And let's not be put off because we can't figure out the whole thing completely comprehensively. Yeah. Turns out mm -hmm. there's more and more people doing research on this. Yeah. And let's expose that to more people. Let's let them be aware. Sure. I read recently a book called Utopia for Realists. Can't quite remember the name of the author. He's Dutch. 30 years old, already written three books covering aspects of history. I found the first few chapters of that to be as good as anything I've read on the case and the credibility of basic income. Oh, cool. So Utopia that. for Realists. Mm. <laughs> Rutgers is his first name, or something like that. Then his second name uh, may come back to me in a minute or sure. two. We'll put it in the show notes. <laughs> yeah. So do you have a uh, new book coming out soon? Yes, the book I'm working on is currently entitled Fixing Politics, with a subtitle, something like a techno-progressive roadmap to a better society. And I'm writing it because politics has the potential to stop all the other good things, which I care about. And I'm also writing it because it doesn't seem that anybody's got the complete answer to this. There are lots of bits of the puzzle. The book I've just mentioned, Utopia of Realists, sets out some of the answers. Paul Mason's book on post-capitalism some fascinating analysis as well. I don't think any of them are really setting out the big vision, which is that technology can allow us to do all the things which previously religion or other philosophies uh, were trying to provide. So yeah. technology can, if it's handled properly, give us effective omniscience, omnipotence, I won't quite say immortality, but uh, it can give us much longer, healthier life than ever before. And it can be done for everybody as mm. well. And so we have to grasp that technological possibility and steer it. My metaphor is that we're going to need to use not just the 
the engine of technology but also the brakes and the accelerator and the steering wheel to make sure that it's going to take us to where we collectively decide we want to get. So this is the vision which I'm setting up, a techno-progressive transhumanist society in which uh, we have ample clean food, ample clean energy, comprehensively solve the problems of recycling and waste, comprehensively solve the problems of health, and then this will allow us to go to a whole new level of existence. You know, as transhumanists say, humanity 1.0 is just the beginning of the steps into the future. We should not think that we have reached the pinnacle of life. We shouldn't try to get back to some imagined golden age from the 1950s or 1970s or 1990s, whenever people it is, whenever it is that people imagine. The better future, a much better future, lies ahead. And we just got to have the confidence and the wisdom to get there. That sounds great. When's this book out? I wish it was out already. Uh, I've written half of it, and it's taken me three months. Okay. So at that same rate, it should be ready in June. Ooh. But I fear that politics will have already changed by the time my book mm. comes out. Yeah, so it's fast moving at the moment. It is fast moving. <laughs> Another thing um, that I find quite fascinating in politics at the moment, or at least uh, tangentially related, is how... Um, we're seeing people like Elon Musk and Bill Gates, these kind of billionaire tech elites, suddenly having huge influence over areas that were traditionally sort of the remit of the state or government, you know, infrastructure or global health, all these kinds of things. Do you do you think do you see that as a good thing? Do you think there's risks associated with that? It's a yeah, it's, a, it's I mean, I think a lot of people really admire those sorts of people, but it's lucky that they're sort of relatively good <laughs> yeah. you know, if someone rises to that point and doesn't have the same altruistic motives maybe we could yes i do admire them there are other titans of uh, capitalism who also have a lot of influence mm. there may be people from the media field mm. who also are trying to influence the world uh there are people from the oil industry think of the i think they're called the Koch brothers right. k-o-c-h i'm not quite sure how to pronounce that yeah so they are using their wealth and their huge intelligence in ways which I consider to be quite destructive, obscuring mm -hmm. the language, obscuring the landscape of the debate over climate change. So there are net negative influences as well. Mm. And even some of the, quote, good guys are sometimes misguided. Sure. So we need to encourage them all to get involved in the global debate. And I'd welcome the Koch brothers as well as part of that global debate, so long as it really is a proper debate mm. and not trying to pull the wool over people's eyes. Sure. It's something's happened in the past. If you look at the Rockefellers or JP Morgan, various other philanthropists in the past have contributed, having made lots of money in their youth, they have uh, fed it back. It's a trend which is encouraging because sometimes people say, that uh, these super successful companies won't allow their earnings to be shared more for the likes of a basic income. Yeah. But actually, if you look at the founders, whether it's Bill Gates or Larry Page or Mark Zuckerberg, they don't seem to have that hang up. Yeah. They seem to understand that uh, the amazing successes of their companies ought to be shared to the whole society which made their successes possible. You, sorry, you mentioned global debate yet there is this paradox where we're becoming slightly more isolationist societies. You know, America first, or Brexit here, and there's a lot of wave around that, around, around Europe. So how do you square that circle where we're becoming slightly more isolationist, but this 
this debate needs to be at a global level. There are certainly risks in the my country first approach. I don't want to demonise everybody who pursues these approaches because there are many supporters of Brexit mm. who actually do want to have an international debate. They just decide and believe that the particular framework, the EU framework, is not the healthy one to do it. Yeah. So if they actually are true to their words, and many of them are, then I'm more than happy for them to be involved in a discussion and we can debate what's the right platform for the future. I think that the merits of the EU are actually very good, despite the many flaws, and I am cautious myself about jumping out of one platform which exists into another platform which doesn't exist and imagining it would be easy to create a whole new network of relationships. I've seen this from my history in the smartphone space when too many companies said, well, we don't like our current smartphone platform, let's jump to something brand new, and it's much, much harder than people expect to create the platform. But I am happy to engage these people. And what we need to do, actually, one of the most important skills is to build bridges to people who have different views from us. And so there are many people who are behind Trump, and even though I dislike their conclusions, we should find ways to engage with their motivations. Because in many cases, what they're trying to do is, in their own way, find a better society. They're concerned about jobs, they're concerned about purity of some sort, and we can find some sympathy with them. And so this skill of bridge building is perhaps the most important skill to avoid uh, a further alienation. We're not going to solve this just by being super smart and presenting facts to each other because we're very skilled at evading facts. So when people say we're in a post-fact world or a post-truth world, that sounds horrible, but it does reflect the fact that it does reflect the observation that we humans are often guided by things other than just an objective evaluation. So we've got to go more deeply into the hearts of each other and figure out ways to tell the stories that will bring us back together. So the vision we need, and this is from chapter one of my book, it's not just a techno-progressive vision, it's got to be an integrative vision, a vision at where people from different backgrounds will feel that they are part of this. And that is what the religions of the past did. They allowed a, a common central point to unite all of society together. And so this uh, vision of a techno-progressive future, I think, has the ability to show people from all the other traditions that their aspirations can be met in this uh, new future. Yeah, sounds great. Um, so if there's people listening to this or who might read your book and they're feeling really inspired and want to make a difference in politics, what would you recommend as the best way to go about it? So we need people from all political parties to put these future questions on the agenda more often. So wherever you are in whichever party, or maybe you're not in any party at all, you may be just uh, an activist or occasionally getting involved in political discussions, you should feel more confident in bringing future topics into the discussion and saying, well, you know, there, there is this thing called technological unemployment. We should be thinking about universal basic income and be ready to answer. So when people say, well, universal basic income is false or f flawed because for example, people will just be lazy or they'll squander all the money. You should be able then to say, well, the evidence shows otherwise. Mm. So learn a bit about that. I'm not sure that there's going to be one political party which is going to have all the answers. You know, I'm a member of a particular political party which is created as a kind of experiment, the Transhumanist Party. 
But I don't mind other people borrowing some of our good ideas. We exist in order to influence the other processes. Yeah, so that's, that's an interesting point. Do you think it's more effective to kind of start up something like a, a new party or a think tank or something like that versus join a more established political party and try and kind of do it from the inside? Yep. What would be the best advice? So I think we need both. We need people right. working inside the existing parties, uh, fighting with the inertia that's there. The problem is that there is a lot of inertia in all mm. long-established systems. People say, well, we don't do it like that around here. Sure. Mm. And the way to persuade them to change is to show an external thing, mm. which uh, might uh, get more votes if they don't transition. So in a way, we can look at UKIP. UKIP's not my favourite political party, but it shows what's possible. Uh, people inside some of the other parties change their policies in order to address perceived reasons why people were going to vote for UKIP. Sure. So there may be new political movements which uh, will become more significant. In Britain it's harder because we have this thing called first past the post. We don't have proportional representation. It's much harder for a third party to come into power. Mm -hmm. But who knows? So all bets are still open, I think. Sure. And let's say uh, my advice to companies and corporations is the same as my advice now, which is we need to be agile. We need to have a vision for where we get, want to get to, and we need to be flexible in terms of what the right way is to achieve it. And the other advice to people is connect to the communities. Surround yourself more of the time with people who are talking about the kinds of things that you want to talk about. Be aware that you are influenced by the people you spend a lot of time with. Find uh, the communities in the real world and in online where you want to spend more of your time, and they will help you to be more of the person that you want to be. Try not to get caught up in the filter bubble of your own community there. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> Indeed. Um, so you are generally optimistic about the future, David? I'm 60%. 60%. Optimistic, 40%. Pessimistic, perhaps a little bit more optimistic now after the results of the election in Holland the other day. Mm -hmm. So that's yes. given me a little bit yep. more of a push up. Good. So we'll see. Can you paint an optimistic future of the of politics? Well, how does it how does it look? What does it look like? There'll be people who are pushing through techno progressive policies. There'll be people saying we should uh, prioritize uh, delaying aging and reversing aging. We should be prioritizing more research on the brain. Uh, so currently, the diseases of dementia are sort of a ugly sister. Uh, there's much more research on cancer, which is understandable, but you know we, we should be applying more of our resources into understanding the brain and fixing these. And also, we should be looking for politicians who are going to encourage citizen scientists. Citizen scientists mean people who have a bit of a grasp of some areas of science and they could use some of their time to research it more and get involved. So they could become part of the solutions to whether it's brain problems or anti-aging problems or some of the other issues. And currently, there isn't so much support provided by the society as a whole for citizen scientists. Let's make that more possible. And a key part of that will be the basic income. So more and more parties are talking about, well, maybe we should explore the basic income. Let's see parties take that up big time here. How can people find you and your... You're based in London. Uh, you have a meetup in London. How does it work? How does it? 
so enjoying you can find bit. me online uh, follow me on twitter at dw2 or you can uh, sign up for the london futurist meetup it's the same as you join any other meetup you don't need to come to any of our events you can uh, watch some of the meetings online uh, as the video recordings you will see the newsletters and the other thing is i'm more than happy to talk to groups of people mm. uh, either in london with my london futurist guys or sometimes with my professional consulting guys with my delta wisdom company which i'll work with groups of senior managers or groups of people from uh, organizations or even with governments to help them talk things through so i'm more than happy to progress the conversation in that way as well Great. Thanks so much. Yeah, thank you so much for coming up and seeing us in Manchester and uh, yeah, giving us your time to do the podcast. It's the city of the first industrial revolution and it's going to be one of the great cities of the fourth industrial revolution <laughs> as well. Amazing. We hope so. I hope so. <laughs> thank you, David. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Well, we hope you enjoyed that discussion with David as much as we did. You can let us know what you thought by tweeting us at MCR Futurists. Our next meetup will be on the 27th of April and the topic will be basic income. You can find out more by going to meetup.com and searching for Manchester Futurists or you can go to our website manchesterfuturists.com. Thanks! <laughs>